Please join me as we pray. Father, we echo the words of that song we just sung. Speak to us, O Lord, until your church is built, until the whole earth is full of your glory. So would you cause our faith to rise and our eyes to be opened. In Jesus' name, amen. No, this didn't get on the video, but I just want to uh, mention our Neighbor Connections Women's Bible Study and Support Group uh, that meets regularly. Um, that's led by Edith Peters, Shereshmi Fernando, and Clary Bile. Uh, we've really struggled in the whole area of mentoring, especially women. And so this has been a great ministry uh, to women in the community as they uh, as provide uh, support, love, and um, an opportunity to study God's Word together. You know, a single mom who came to know Christ with me a few years ago actually attended that Bible study. And you know, obviously, only when she can, because she is a, a grandmother of four children. She's only in her uh, early 40s. She's got two kids, uh, two girls. Both of them are single moms. And um, she just called me earlier this year, and she said, Sam, you know, uh, one of my daughters just came to know Christ. And it's great to see, you know, for us to pray together and uh, to read the Bible together. And now her other daughters uh, started volunteering with us at the food pantry. It's such a joy to minister alongside uh, such wonderful people and neighborhood connections. And uh, I want to thank you all for being so committed to glorifying God through your service. Now, I was walking through the downtown theater district uh, one winter, and I saw a man holding up a large cardboard sign saying, Please help me. I've just lost my job, and uh, I have a family to support. I have no place to live and I have nothing to eat. Now at that time, there was a woman uh, all decked out in fur coat along with her family, and um, she had a little boy, probably about 10, 12 years old, and the little boy asked in a very loud voice, as little boys do when they have an honest question. He said, Mom, why does that man, why doesn't he have a job? And the woman replied, Son, it's because he's not trying hard enough. One time or another, all of us, to some degree, whether through our actions, or what we've thought, um, and what we've said, have acted in a similar way as this woman to a person in need. And we have to admit that there's a lot of frustration and confusion about ministering to people in need even among Christians. And we soon realize that it's one thing to help people, but it's another to do it wisely. And uh, about five years ago, you sent me to California to study on a church that does work with the poor. uh, They're just a cutting-edge church, and it's a very wealthy church. And um, there, they were telling me about a phenomenon that happened happened in California where many of uh, the homeless now begin to live in motels. And this has caused such a problem in California that the government has legisla- uh, legislated that people could only live, families could only live in a motel for a maximum of 29 days. So that means that they have to move out after those 29 days. And usually they'll sleep either in their cars, in parks, or in someone's uh, friend or a friend of theirs. And you know, a wealthy businessman from that church um, wanted to help. So he, he bought an apartment complex. Well, what a nice guy. 
you know, they moved the people who they were working with into this apartment complex, you know, thinking that they were going to help them and give them a sense of pride and, and also um, not have this inconvenience of having to uh, move every 29 days. But after a couple of months, uh, many of the tenants wanted to move back to the motels. They said, well, at the motel, we have free satellite TV, we have a swimming pool, and we have maid service every day. We don't have that here at the apartment building. So it's very easy to get involved, with, um, uh, get involved in the life of a person in need, but sometimes we can make things worse rather than better. And so, armed with that logic and uh, resolve, many find it much easier to not get involved at all. You know, I, I believe that one of the main reasons for the confusion and for the frustration uh, with regards to ministering to people in need is because of the different ways of thinking about uh, the poor that pervade both our culture and also our church. But one side in general, sees poverty as a result of personal irresponsibility. I think the majority of people believe that. This side will say, I think this person's poverty came upon their own fault. Or they'll say, well, no wonder no one wants to help him. He's so grumpy and ungrateful. You know, and this is an ongoing problem with this ministry of helping people in need. We want to help nice, kind-hearted people who will be so thankful and grateful for the help that they receive from us. And while it is important uh, that our aid really helps people and doesn't create dependency, the Bible tells us that Jesus loved us, he was kind to us, and he was willing to save us even though we were ungrateful, we were evil, and we were undeserving. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the Bible teaches us that we need to be kind to everyone, even though we think that they're undeserving, because we are just as undeserving. Now, the other side of the coin, uh, in general, sees poverty as caused by unjust social systems, and that poor individuals have really no ability to escape them. They believe governments are not doing enough to alleviate the cause of the the poor, the, uh, the suffering of the poor, and that social systems are structured to favor the rich and the powerful and those with a specific skin color. And the Bible moves back and forth in this whole area of uh, um, justice and sometimes called mercy uh, to this ministry to the poor. And you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan in uh, Luke chapter 10 is probably the most uh, famous biblical uh, appeal to help the poor. And this aid, again, is called mercy, very specifically. But then elsewhere in the Bible, sharing food, uh, shelter, and other basic resources to the poor is called doing justice. And I find that interesting. So it's basically telling us that to, to fail to provide these necessities is not just considered as a failure to be compassionate, but it's a failure to be fair to be just. And I think the reason that uh, we use both justice and mercy in Scripture is that the Bible's explanation for, for poverty is much more complex than our current way of thinking. You know, the Bible provides uh, us three 
uh, at least three causes of poverty. And um, one is injustice and oppression. It refers to any social uh, condition or treatment that keeps the person in poverty, such as in Psalm 82. Again, in the Old Testament, the main Hebrew word for the word poor is translated the wrongfully oppressed. For example, the oppression in the Bible is called uh, includes the social systems that are weighed in favor of the powerful, uh, high interest loans. Again, you know, in, in Proverbs talks about those uneven scales. Uh, today we call them money mart uh, and unjust low wages. Secondly, there's the uh, circumstantial calamity, and this refers to any natural disaster or circumstance that uh, that brings about uh, poverty. And again, the scriptures was filled with them. And Nuhum uh, talked to us about all the references of, um, of famine in scripture uh, a few weeks ago. And that includes injury, floods, and fires. But thirdly, a, a third cause of poverty that's mentioned in the Bible is personal failure. Poverty can also be caused by one's own personal sins and failures, such as laziness or um, uh, problems with self-discipline. And, you know, we find that these three factors of poverty are usually tied in together and are present in most situations. Let me give you an example. In in neighbor connections, we know of children who are raised in terrible conditions, and usually uh, children's aid is involved. And that's really factor one. That's uh, injustice and oppression. And it's likely to cause poor health. That's factor two, circumstantial calamity. And also, they learn many, many bad habits uh, from their community about um, uh, just a way of life that's not conducive to personal success and progress, and that's factor three. But factor three can also be a version of factor one. Again, for that child, it's the failure of the parents to read to them, to nurture them, uh, to teach them values of honesty and uh, diligence and delayed gratification, which is factor three personal failure for those adults. But it's really factor one for the children. Are you tracking with me so far? Inner city children, uh, through no fault of their own, may grow up with the vastly inferior uh, schooling and with overall environment that's really detrimental to their learning. Now, some, of course, uh, it's possible for youth to be born into poverty to break out of it. And we know of many situations, and we praise God for them. Uh, last uh, week, you heard uh, from Malika, who was sharing about um, uh, her uh, opportunity to become a summer missionary at CEF. She's coming out of Tandridge, and now she's going to college, and uh, she's a good example of that. And, you know, praise God that about half of her support's already been raised through you. Thank you so much. But, you know, it takes many more times of resolve, of independence, creativity, and courage to break out of it, to be able to go to college and get a job than it does for any child born in a middle-class family. Some children will grow up with a hundred times better opportunity for academic and economic success than others do. Now, we ask the question, why does this situation exist, and what can we do about it? Well, all too often, those of us who've been spared from the calamity this uh, unthinkable tragedy of chronic abuse, of isolation, of poverty, uh, of rape, addiction, and rejection. You know, we expect, including myself, simple answers from 
those who experience such incredible hurts. We want to ask the question, well, what happened? What will fix it? What will it cost to fix it? Many times the problems are systemic and complicated. So we wait in the wings for the answers we like uh, with timelines we think are reasonable. I mean, let's get serious here. Who wants uh, a complicated uh, problem that is going to require almost impossible solutions? So to answer the question of what should we do, we need to look at the life of Jesus as the model. And Henry Nouwen said it best in his book, The The Wounded Healer. He said, Jesus was a revolutionary who was not an extremist since he didn't offer an, an ideology, but he offered himself. He offered himself. So our text for today is in Mark 7. And it's the story of Jesus healing the, uh, the mute, uh, the deaf and the mute man, starting with verse 31. Let's read it together. And Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought him to a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. And after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ear. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephatha, which means be open. At this the man's ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He he has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So when Jesus returns to the area of Decapolis, he's been there before, he was faced with a man in bondage of a terrible, terrible handicap. The man was deaf and was almost completely mute. And you know, there's a lot of social pain and stigma in those days, and sometimes even today, uh, for the deaf and the mute. The gawking and the impatient stares that accompany that, for those who don't understand the condition. There's also the humiliation of being thought stupid, because they can't speak. And in this case, the man couldn't even ask questions, couldn't comprehend the explanation, and most likely he could not read. So even the truth of the scriptures was hidden from him. Also, in those days, uh, this condition was sometimes attributed to being demon-possessed. So he had that going for him. So his situation, to say the least, was miserable and hopeless. Now, he did, however, had one thing, he had one thing going for him. He had people who loved him and who took him to Jesus. They had heard and seen uh, Jesus previously healing a demon-possessed man. And so they brought him when he returned. And you know, Mark... Um, was incredibly detailed in uh, describing this unique process of the man's healing. It's just a short passage, but it describes an elaborate procedure of Jesus' healing. Jesus said that Jesus took him aside, uh, and you know, to prevent any embarrassment, which I'm sure the man was used to, and then Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spit and touched the man's tongue, and next he looked up to heaven, and then he exhaled a deep sigh. Finally said to him, Ephatha, be opened. Now, again, we have to ask the question, well, why did Jesus follow these steps? He didn't before. And, I mean, sometimes he just spoke the word and the person was healed. He didn't even have to be there in front of him. And why did Mark record them? 
I think first and most obvious, it was because of the man's, uh, the nature of the man's handicap. I mean, he thrust his fingers in the man's ear again as a sign that he was going to heal him from his deafness. By wetting the man's tongue, Jesus indicated he would soon be able to speak. And then Jesus looked upward to heaven to tell him where the power came from. That it was a divine healing. I believe Jesus accommodated uh, his way of healing to the deaf man's condition. Just as we should. And in doing so, he not only focused on the healing, but again, on the source of healing himself. That the healing was divine. It couldn't have come from any other way. But I believe that the other reason for Jesus' elaborate healing was to give an example for us of what's necessary to reach the lost and hurting world. Scholars note that this and a similar elaborate healing in Mark uh, chapter 8 was, um, were due to the fact that people uh, that he was ministering were Gentiles living in a pagan culture. So they wouldn't understand all the nuances of uh, belief in God. Jesus' procedure in ministering here provides us a beautiful model of how it is uh, to reach out to your community. His look, his sigh, his touch, and his word are helpful symbols for us as a church in our attempts to rescue needy humanity. And my hope, my hope for us today is that we'll take Jesus' model to heart as we examine our text so that his power would flow similarly through us. So let's look at the first one. Jesus models ministry to the poor through his luck in verse 34. You know, I've seen a lot in uh, ministry to people in need and more than I care to see. Um, a man uh, who's known to many who volunteer at Neighborhood Connections uh, came to the pantry uh, one time and many, many times drunk. And after a while, he passed out on the couch that was there. And, you know, the food pantry was closing, so we had to ask him to leave after a little while, and he refused to leave. And so after a few minutes back and forth, in fact, I had to actually tell him, look, if you don't go, uh, we're going to have to call the police. And I tried to say that as kindly as possible. Uh, that's pretty hard. And, um, well, after a few minutes, he decided, okay, I'm going to go. And as he was going out the door, he turns around and he says, well, this is what I think of you. And he pulls down his pants and he moons me. Now, after a few minutes of, um, I told you I've seen more than I cared to see. Um, now, how I responded to that is a topic of another sermon on how not to do ministry to the world. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so when Mark tells us that when Jesus looked to heaven, we understand that the look was a visible indication it was a visible, visible indication of Jesus' life of prayerful communion and dependence upon the Father. So if we're going to impact the lives of people in our community, uh, we need to pray. Just as Peter mentioned on the video. You know, uh, before we start uh, our ministry, we pray. We pray for, for ourselves uh, with regard to the spiritual condition of people and also um, uh, for our attitude. And you know, Vittorio, who was on the video, he walks around those halls throughout that time, and he prays. On Tuesdays, the second Tuesday of each month, we commit the people who we work with to the Lord in prayer. And there's a great spiritual battle that goes on for the hearts and minds of uh, the women and uh, men and children who we work with. Many have addictions. Um, 
Many have physical illnesses or mental illnesses. So we pour out our helplessness before a sovereign God. So please, I just encourage you, as Peter pleaded with you, please pray. Now, I believe it's also significant that Jesus looked to heaven for a second reason. When uh, we look to heaven, we see the world through the Father's eyes. That's when we're able to look at hopeless situations in a fresh way. You know, the people are made, people are made in the image of God. When we were working, uh, when we were working with a man, um, was known again to many of the volunteers, um, we found out that um, really, you know, he came to be homeless and without a job because he was working, he had a great job, but he was in a car accident. And uh, he was in a lot of pain uh, from that accident, so he started drinking to alleviate the pain. And from that, he lost his job. And because he lost his job, he got very depressed. And because he got very depressed, his wife left him, and he took the ch- they, she took the children. And after that, uh, they lost her home, and he's been homeless. He's been uh, in and out of rehab, and uh, he's been uh, in and out of jobs. Really, it started from a car accident. You know, it could all happen to us. So every person has their story, and we don't know their story many times. But what's important is that how their story intersects our story. We need to ask God to help us see people through his eyes. And you know, none of us as believers are meant to go through life with dry eyes. None of us. We need to be like Jeremiah and Jesus. When Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. Are we a compassionate people? You know, have we ever wept over the deformed, over the sick? Have we sorrowed over a life distorted by sin and addiction? Does the six o'clock news sometimes make us cry over divorce, poverty, abortion, broken relationships? need to model Jesus' love. Secondly, Jesus' sigh. Mark records Jesus sighing, and he doesn't give a reason why. He says it was a deep sigh. Now, given the situation, it's easy to believe that it was out of deep compassion for the man. Even though he knew exactly what he was doing, that he was going to heal him in a few seconds. Jesus sighed because he knew of the man's devastation, his broken ego, his hurt upon hurt and humiliation. And perhaps the sigh was also for what lay behind it, the man's sin, a broken and uh, fallen creation. Favor once said that there's no place where earth's sorrows is more felt than in heaven. There's no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than in heaven. I believe Jesus sighed also because he was longing for the coming of the kingdom. Well, there will be no more tears No more pain, no more deaf and mute people, no more mental illness, and no more poverty. We'll all be, all of us will be gloriously transformed. And perhaps people who hope for the kingdom are the ones who don't deny this coming, um, they don't disorder, they don't deny the present disorder that they see around them. They wait and they watch and they pray and expect, knowing that Jesus' scheme for the future is reliable and trustworthy. They trust him, and they act upon it before it's fully at hand. And how do you act on the future before it's fully at hand? Well, they ask themselves, if Jesus 
kingdom is really secure. Well, what needs to happen? Well, the answer is, is that Jesus' future kingdom is enacted now through loving your neighbor. You know, we're called to fashion traces of the coming kingdom right now. And one of the primary ways to do that is uh, by practicing uh, loving your neighbor. And we're asked, uh, which is the most important, when he was asked, sorry, when Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment in the Bible, Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. Now, have you ever noticed that though he was asked for the most important commandment, he gives them two. It's as if he's saying, you can't have one without the other. With God, you always get the neighbor as well. You can't claim to love God without your neighbor. And in Jesus' vision of the world, they're a package deal. So Jesus sighed. Thirdly, Jesus touched the man in verse 33. You know, experts tell us that touch is critical to our existence. You know, children in orphanages are known to die from lack of physical touch. And Jesus never recoiled from touching people. He didn't recoil from laying his hands on sinful humanity. On one occasion, the man was leprous, uh, was leprous, and he came to Jesus and he lay prostrate at his feet. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus was moved with compassion. And uh, so he touched the man. And perhaps it had been 20 to 30 years since that man had been touched by a non-leprous hand. And you know, the Bible's not talking about just a superficial contact. In fact, it's translated to take hold of. And onlookers and disciples were shocked. Now, Jesus was now ceremonially unclean. But it didn't matter. And there's probably several reasons why Jesus did it. You know, because reaching out is an instinct of a loving heart. You know, when your kids come to you, you stretch out your arms and you touch them. And he's always wanted to also clear the way of the man's fears. He wanted the leper also to feel his willingness and his sympathy. In fact, he was saying, I understand. I'm with you. Now, those are the human reasons. But I believe there's an overshadowing theological reason because the touch of a pure hand on the rotting leper's flesh is a parable really of the incarnation. Jesus is the incarnation by taking on flesh, becoming sin for us, and then giving us his purity. Jesus laid hold of our flesh and he healed us. And lastly, uh, Jesus' word. You know, we're just bringing it back, bringing it all together. So his, his look, this is sigh, his touch, and then his word. You know, God's word is enough. In fact, he only says one word. But God has chosen to minister through his people who pray, who are compassionate, who are willing to get their hands dirty and touch people. This is Jesus' lesson to us who reach out to a hurting world. Jesus was in communion with God. He exhaled a deep sigh for compassion of the man. His hands had anointed the man, and then he spoke, Ephatha, be opened. You know, those words sailed through the air into the man's ears, into his brain, and his tongue was loosened, his ears were opened. And really, in the end, we have to be like that man's friends who brought him to Jesus. And that's what, you know, if I were to sum up the ministry of neighbor connections, it would be this. It would be bringing people to Jesus so he can touch them. You know, uh, you've heard on the video of uh, people uh, bringing others uh, uh, from the community through our Alpha course, through the services. Uh, a few of them are now coming, uh, uh, helping provide jobs, places to live, uh, giving them dignity. But most of all, love. 
you know, all of you, you're a revolution waiting to happen. And I just want to liberate you. Uh, for those of you who, you know, hear and read about great revolutionaries and social visionaries and consider yourselves worlds apart from them. And I want you to, I want to urge you to believe otherwise. Because modeling Jesus' touch is offering really yourself, wherever, however, um, whatever. And perhaps in huge ways that you've never imagined before, but really most likely in small ones. And it's both a starting place and an ending place. And where there are you know, great movements and missions that deserve our serious consideration, uh, perhaps the greatest revolution of all needs to begin by loving our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just pray that uh, you'd open up our eyes, speak to us, speak the fact to us, that eyes and our hearts would be open. In Jesus' name, amen.